Hello, hello, and welcome to the return of Some Deeper Dialogue, the podcast. I hope everything is going wonderfully for you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brody. I'm based on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia. Over the past 10 years, I've engaged with podcasting and profile writing on an irregular basis. I've been fortunate to interview a variety of amazing people, from Academy Award winners and legendary comedians to Olympic athletes and grassroots activists. I'm really looking forward to creating a space to discuss the latest in queer news and feature conversations with people who inspire me. Today, I will be chatting with 70-year-old Kim Hastreiter. She was the editor-in-chief of Paper Magazine for three decades. She co-founded the publication around her kitchen table in 1984. She's an artist, creator, connector, and an all-around inquisitive, brilliant mind. From my chat with Kim, I got the impression that she's a tough New Yorker. You don't get to the top of American publishing by being a pushover. And I think her toughness comes across in our interview. But first, I want to take a look at what's making news in the queer sphere. Log Cabin Republicans are praising Melania Trump as a gay icon. I really don't have anything to say about this other than no. But let's take a listen. She made history as the first Republican First Lady to ever support our community, the Log Cabin Republicans, and LGBT Americans. Excuse me, I don't recall Melania Trump advocating on behalf of anyone, let alone queer Americans. In fact, I can't even tell you five words she said through the tumultuous, terrible, nightmarish four years that her husband occupied the White House, or was squatting in the White House, as I like to say. Secondly, what does log cabin even mean? I don't mean to be crass, but is log cabin a euphemism for asshole? Your cabin is too full of logs, so you can't take any more dick? Republicans tell me. Is that what it means? You couldn't pay pay me enough money to join your self-loathing, despicable cause. Thankfully, I've never met any, anybody in my life, I've never met any conservative queer people. Thankfully for me, they only exist on the internet, and I hope to never engage or interact with any of these people in real life, because I find them just to be really sad people. They're in the queer sunken place. I don't understand how anybody could take up membership in such an organization. For me, it comes down to one of two potential reasons. Number one, it's conditional acceptance from family. They feel as though they have to advocate against their own interests for the love of others, or they're hoping to have some breadcrumbs brushed down from their oppressors like Donald Trump. Trump attempted to ban trans people from serving in the military. He was derogatory towards several queer people, like Rosie O'Donnell. He called her a dog on national television. He's gross. Melania Trump's gross, and anyone who supports them is gross, including LGBTQ plus Americans. So I hope these people can eventually crawl out of their own self-loathing and start advocating for themselves and, and hopefully others, because it's an existence that I don't think is very pretty. 
I recently went to the cinema to watch Marvel's Eternals. It is the very first Marvel film to feature an openly gay superhero, played by Brian Tyree Henry, who I think did a fantastic job. I'm not necessarily a superhero film fan, which I don't say in front of my fiance because he absolutely loves Marvel, but I did go watch Eternals. Of course, having a gay superhero has stirred up some headlines. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, and a variety of other countries have banned the film, which isn't necessarily surprising, but I do want to take a moment to thank Disney as they announced that they would only be releasing one alternate cut of the film for the Arab world, which sees intimate scenes between gay and straight couples removed from the film. But it's still understood by watching the alternate cut that Brian Tyree Henry's character is in a two-male relationship and they have a child. And I think bringing this awareness not only to the Arab world, but to many places here in Canada and America, places that still don't understand that queer people exist and we aren't going anywhere. There are still many rural places here in Canada where this awareness is going to go a very long way. And I applaud Marvel and I applaud Disney for its decisions on this because I know when you're when you're talking about films that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, I know these decisions aren't weighed lightly. And I think they did the right thing here and it's going to have a big impact. And P.S. Angelina Jolie did a kick-ass performance and the film is worth going to see just for her, but also do it for the gays. So the primary reason why I wasn't able to engage with podcasting to the degree that I would have liked is because for the past two years I was working as the assistant to a member of parliament who recently lost their seat in the Canadian federal election. It was definitely an experience. On one hand, it provided me an income and a sense of stability during the worst global health crisis in a century, when many people weren't as fortunate, so for that I am eternally grateful. But on the other hand, it gave me an up-close glimpse into some of the more unflattering um, aspects of Canadian politics. I found myself frequently walking multiple tightropes trying to satisfy people's egos rather than working to better the lives of Canadians, the lives of constituents. It was incredibly difficult to work in a place that I didn't necessarily feel shared those values or cared about the gravity of the issues facing Canadians. I'm not about performative politics. I'm not about the cultish nature of political parties. And I feel like the Liberal Party of Canada and Justin Trudeau have a long way to go on Indigenous reconciliation, on climate action, on income inequality, on addressing the unsustainability of student debt in this country, on universal pharmacare and a basic income, I think the liberals can do a lot more. And so that's why for me, I'm I'm really happy to no longer be working for the government because I, I just felt like the liberals have been for the, for the past number of years dragging their heels on too many issues. And I don't think we have the time to continue to drag our heels, especially on, on climate action. That's where I'm at politically. I'm so, so happy to now have the time to really engage here and, and work on some of the creative endeavors that I've been meaning to engage with for some time now. I know this topic will definitely emerge in future episodes, but now here is my chat with Kim Hastwriter. I hope you enjoy and let me know what you think. You live 
live in Halifax? I do. And there's something I have to get to the bottom of. Is it true that you studied at NASCAD? Yes. What was your time like? It was, you know, gray. So that's what you remember most about it? No, you know, it was an amazing, it was like a moment. It was like a very important place in the art world. And I was an artist and I had been in art school and I was making art that was conceptual and I was kind of way beyond, I didn't want to like, you know, take drawing classes and stuff. So it, it was a very interesting school. It was like a very unique place. And it was, I don't know if you know the history, but when it started, it was started by all these Americans with one Canadian who was like Gary Kennedy, who got the money for it because they were all in school together in Ohio. But then they um, didn't want to get a job. They didn't know what to do. So Gary said, oh, you know, the Canadian government is giving all this money to art. They just had all this money that they were putting into art. So he said, I bet we could like start our own art school. So he took all his friends from America and he made this application to the Canadian government to start a new school. And they said, okay, we'll give you the money, but you have to do it in Nova Scotia because they wanted to like develop Nova Scotia. So that's how it started. And it was very, at the very beginning, you know, it was, it was like there weren't classes. It was just based on getting all these amazing artists to come through and they had, pub they had a publishing arm. So they would publish books for them. They had a print arm. They would make, you know, they had a, a press that they would make prints for the artist. And then they would bring the artists in for like six months stints, but they had all the most incredible artists there from around the world. It was like a really amazing place. And they were kind of affiliated with Cal Arts, California through the arts so you know it was very avant-garde it was very amazing and it was only a hundred students there was very it was very small and you could go for free so I left the art school I was in and I applied or I you know applied and I got accepted and I you had to already have a body of work to get accepted because it was very um unstructured but it was incredible. I mean, Joseph Boyce taught there, Vito Conchi, all the most famous artists of the time in the 70s. And um, I went there. And what happened is that government of Canada discovered that it was all Americans and mostly American students also. So they got really mad and they said, we're going to take your money away unless you make it all Canadian. So they changed the whole school. They fired all the teachers and they changed it. And Gary Kennedy quit and it became like a more normal art school. Interesting. You were born and raised in West Orange, New Jersey. Uh, your mother, Gloria, was into art from what, I, what I've read. Do you credit her for initiating your passion for the arts? I credit her with everything. Yeah, she was an amazing woman. And was, was Gloria a paper reader? She worked at paper. She helped me start paper, free labor. But she, she was very avant-garde and she was hip. I mean, she always, she was the one that made me like do all the crazy things in my life. She lived kind of vicariously through me because in those days when she was coming up, she didn't have a career. She had a family. My father had a business. She became his partner. If she had been born at a different time, she would have definitely had like career and, but she just put everything into us. And I was kind of her wild child that she lived vicariously through. And I brought her everywhere. I brought her to fashion shows. She became friends with my friends. She was like an amazing woman. And she kind of would push me out of my comfort zone, made me do crazy things in the summertime. She, you know, she called me on my bullshit. I always say she was like tough, but anything, any craziest idea, 
I would come up with, she would love and she would just drink the Kool-Aid and help. How can I help? And then when I started a paper, a normal parent would have said like, why are you doing this? How are you going to make money? You're crazy. Instead, my mother was like, how can I help? You know? And so then she said she was kind of retiring from the jewelry business. My father had a jewelry store that he inherited from his father in Newark, New Jersey. And then my mother kind of joined because she was bored. Because when we left home, she was bored. So she wanted to do something. So she started this like manufacturing company with my father that made earrings. And so she would do the, she would like kind of, she became his partner in business and she went to work every day. I mean, you know, she was really good at it, but it wasn't paper. And so then when they retired, they moved into New York. Even before they retired, they moved into the city when we had left home because they always wanted to live in the city. West Orange was only like a half hour out of city but it was the suburbs that where we grew up and then when we all left me and my sister they moved into Greenwich Village so when she lived in Greenwich Village my mother came and said you know I'll help you all work at paper and we had no money we were poor I needed a bookkeeper who I trusted my mother and then she did subscription she came to work and she became proficient on computers she became like a real computer nut and she became like the mom of the whole office I and mean, she worked there for a long time I love that. And so there wasn't an expectation from your parents that you enter a traditional workplace. No. I mean, the only time my mother ever gave me a hard time was when I moved to New York after school and I was like kind of finding myself. I was supposed to be an artist and I was kind of like getting set with the art world and I had to get a job because my parents didn't have a lot of money and they didn't give me money. So I got this job selling clothes on Madison Avenue at the store that someone, Joey Arias, my friend who I moved here with, got me this job. We both got jobs. He worked at Fiorucci. I worked at the store, Betsy Bonchinini. I was owned by Betsy Johnson, but it was like this fancy eccentric store that hired artists. And it was on Madison Avenue, like uptown in the fancy. It was really expensive, but it was kooky. And I did the windows for them. And I was a sales girl. And I was a sales girl to like amazing people. It was like, you know, Barbara Streisand shop there. Jackie Kennedy was my was one of my clients. I mean, Linda Ronstadt. I remember like everybody. Nora Ephron became a really good friend. So I had, there was a lot of famous people that would come there or rich, interesting people. And I worked there and I kind of started getting comfortable and I would go to clubs all night and I wasn't making my art. And I remember at a certain point after like three years of working there, my mother was like, okay, that's enough. You know, do you want to be a sales girl for your life? Is that what you want? You know, she kind of came down on me and she was right completely, but I was getting comfortable. So she kind of gave me, you know, she called me out on that. So that's when, and I met, yeah, I met Bill Cunningham up there and he off, he got me my first job as at the Soho News, which was this newspaper downtown. And it was better than selling clothes. I mean, I was, I didn't like selling clothes. It was just exciting because I would meet all these people and my life was really at night. I would go to the clubs every night. So that was my life. And then in the day, I would just have to like get through the day at the store and I would do these crazy window displays that I love to do. But it wasn't taking me anywhere. And I didn't want to be a salesperson. I didn't want to own a store. So my mother said, do you want to own a store? Is that what you want? You want to go in the fashion business? And I was kind of like, no. So she had my ass kicked. And then Bill got me this job at the same time. So I was like into it. Bill got me this first, my first job at the Soho News, which was this newspaper as the style editor. I like that your mother was that encouraging. I feel like that is uh, it's a necessity. It just as a side note, I, I interviewed, I believe you're friends with Debbie Mazar. 
I interviewed her back in the day ages ago. I remember I was thinking about it today because I saw a photo of you two on Instagram. Her um, uh, when I interviewed her, her daughters were must have been very young because I remember her on the phone shushing her uh, <laughs> her uh, girls as they were in the room. So it was cool to see uh, you two. I know Gabby like she was a teen, so I know her when she was like at the door of the Mud Club. She was a door person, you know. She home like early because her mother had she had this crazy mother and she was a doorman and then she started doing makeup so she would do all the makeup for like the Soho News you know I I knew her from the mud club because I practically lived at the mud club that was my favorite club and she was at the door and we became friends paper was conceived at your kitchen table in the mid 80s and went on to become a seminal iconic publication in the world of art and culture what does the paper mean to you today now that it's it's no longer in your hands I mean, it doesn't exist to me because it, I left it four years ago called it, and they're not, they don't print it anymore. So, you know, I'm not sentimental about it. I guess it doesn't really, it has no meaning for me because it's not my voice anymore. It's somebody else's. I don't hang on to stuff. I'm not like sentimental like that. Paper was me kind of. And so when you leave, you do something else. You bring your voice somewhere else. So I'm doing a lot of other things. And so I'm happy. You know, I wasn't happy at the end of paper because it wasn't, like I was just trying to keep the doors open. It wasn't fun for me anymore because I don't like really celebrities and it was all, it was, everything was, there's no business model of a magazine. Everything was like countable and celebrities and like clickbait. I'm not into any of that. So I'm into creativity and what I was into really wasn't commercial. I've never been into commerciality and I had to just kill myself to keep the doors open. Felt like I was running as fast as, dancing as fast as I could to keep the doors open, but I, it was and fun. What's fun for me is creating, being creative. So the content, I couldn't even be my old, old creative self in the in the magazine because it required something else in order to achieve readership. We never had, it was never about being big to me. It was always about being great. I'd rather be great than big. Well, it's, it's kind of disappointing. I don't know if you have a different view on this, but it seems as though paper probably couldn't exist today if you were to try to achieve this the same thing paper could happen again it's just you know it's just would happen differently it could be a newspaper it could be online it could be podcasts so you can't duplicate things and people make the mistake of thinking everything oh it used to, i hate when people say everything used to be good it used, this used to be good new york used to be great it's so less good now it's not it's never less good so you don't subscribe to the Fran Lebowitz kind of outlook on New York and, and the art scene? New York used to be great. It's been, I don't subscribe to anybody, but it's not just Fran. I love Fran, but everybody, George, all my heroes, they're always like, oh, everything's not as good. Yeah. It used to be better. I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I believe that those people are lazy because everything is the best now, but it's never in the same place and it's never the same. So you have to do the work to find out, find it. Where's the greatness? It's not in the same place. Nothing is the same. Everything changes. So just because New York is different, it doesn't mean that there's not amazing shit going on somewhere. Could be here. It could be elsewhere, another place. It could. You just have to find where the um, follow the amazingness it's always people are still amazing people are still geniuses young people there's new geniuses every day there's new geniuses coming and all i love to do is find inspiration and it's always there people didn't all of a sudden stop 
being geniuses or right. stop artists didn't stop being born. People didn't stop being inspirational. That doesn't stop. That continues. You just, it's your job to find it. Where is it? It's never, and so the lazy people are always like thinking it has to be the same. It has to be in the same place. It has to be in the same streets. It has to be this city, same city. No. I'd like to, I know I only have you for another 15 minutes or so, but I'd like to broadly kind of touch on some important cultural shifts that you um, witnessed. And I want to start with the AIDS crisis. Um, could you touch on how you experienced that as a cultural observer on the New York City art scene? I mean, I was young, you know, I was 20. So imagine, you know, you just becoming who you are. I wasn't even who I am. So you're just becoming and suddenly this thing happens. It's kind of like, I think, how maybe 20 year olds might look in the future back at COVID, you know? It's something that just happens and you're really young and you're just forming who you are. And all of a sudden, like all your friends, like a million of your friends start dying. And it was, it was heavy because, I mean, I, you know, first, my first friend to die was Klaus Nomi, who was a singer. And he died like really early. And it was like probably 1979 or something. That was really early. And he had like the gay cancer, like there wasn't even a name for it then. But he died. And everybody was like, he was young. I was like, right. Oh, my God. And then another person young died, like people started dying. And if you got AIDS, you would die. There was no like medicine or anything. So for like the first 10 years of AIDS, anyone that got HIV was just waiting to die. They would either test, when people started testing, they would get tested and they would be positive, but they wouldn't have AIDS yet. So maybe they would just start being healthy. And then in a few years, they would, whatever, the, it would change over to AIDS. Like I think when you had certain symptoms, then you had full-blown AIDS. Like you could, have a, you could have HIV, but not have AIDS. So I was witnessing as a 20 year old, all these people my age who were given like death sentences, like definite death sentences. Imagine if you're 20 or 21 or 23 and you're given a death sentence. Like what do you do with your time remaining? That in retrospect, I see was really fascinating to me. What my, I mean, I lost like a hundred friends at least and acquaintances. I used to keep lists of everybody that died and then everybody that was dying. I mean, I would just, it was just like, it was heavy, but you couldn't even, it was so unreal. You couldn't place it anywhere as a 20 year old. I didn't know how to contextualize it. So I just like kind of lived it and lost tons of people. I personally, you know, as a hetero girl, wasn't like scared for my life. You know what I mean? So it was really gay men mostly. And then when I had paper, like a lot of our contributors, I mean, they all died. Mm -hmm. So many people, amazingly talented people. So, you know, it was, I don't even know what to say. It was just so, I was so young, it was like traumatic. It was definitely a trauma. Imagine, like, you can't even imagine when you're 20. But I guess I see in the future, like a 20 year old probably couldn't imagine like what we're living through now. I mean, the COVID thing is pretty big, right? And it's different. It's not AIDS. It's not, it doesn't have to do with gay or it's just still, but it's heavy, right? What we're doing now, the isolate, I mean, and the Trump, I mean, the catastrophes that we're living through, like the, it's catastrophe. I'm doing a whole book and I have a whole catastrophe section. I'm really like, I have all the, I have a whole AIDS section. I have a, 
9-11, so all the catastrophes, I'm doing a memoir kind of uh, called Stuff. It's, it's a book, through, uh, stories told through my stuff because I'm a big collector. You just mentioned 9-11 and, and obviously the attacks had major political implications with the invasion of Afghanistan and subsequent war in Iraq. But locally, I, I read your post on Instagram and I know that was a quite a traumatic day. You were in New York City when it happened. Did it have any effect on the art community? Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone was completely traumatized for like, at least the people downtown. You know, I always said it was always different if you lived on the Upper West Side, you didn't weren't as traumatized as the people who lived downtown. The downtown people, like me, like when it happened, every single person, friend of mine came to my house because they all knew I looked at it. And they all like kind of, we just, it was trauma. I mean, I cried, like I had, we all had PTSD for like years after that. Like I cried at like nothing. We would cry at the weirdest things. I wrote once a whole piece about the PTSD once because I would cry and all, everyone I knew was having the same thing. Like you would just, like you'd see a, a TV commercial, like a hokey TV commercial and you would cry. I mean, I was crying, it was PTSD. Could you tell me what mentorship means to you from the point of view of somebody who has been mentored by some pretty spectacular people, uh, but also from somebody who has mentored others? Mentorship to me is super big part of my life and really important to me. And even um, when we started paper, even from the beginning, paper in like 1984 started in my house. And like in 19, maybe 86 or something, we were still doing it in my house. But we had enough money to hire one person for like $200 a week. That's, we had no money. None of us were taking up salary, but we decided we needed help. So I said we had to hire, we hired this person who would be an intern director because I thought, okay, take your money that you have and make it like go as far, stretch it as far as you can. Because if you hire an intern director, you'll get like five people maybe instead of one person. That's like my sense of business. I'm like, you know, I don't know how to make money, but I'm good at, I'm good at maximizing. I'm good at like being sensible. That was like sensible to me to hire a person that could get other people to work for free so we started this internship program but my thing always was that if you have people working for you for free you have to teach them and you have to inspire them you have to give back to them you have to make it worth their while if they're like running errands and schlepping like bags of clothes for a photo shoot then they should come on the photo shoot they should watch the photo shoot they should come when we're laying out the pictures and look at the pictures of the clothes that they left and then they should like see the final layout i would always include them you know look at the layout you brought the clothes for the shoot and the shoot went into the layout and then they would have the issue and they would feel like so much pride and they understood that terrible day of schlepping on the subway holding a million bags and they felt like shit but it it made them not feel like shit you know so a lot of people use interns, they would just like abuse interns and like have interns just do all the shit work. And then the interns would hate them, hate them. they would have bad experiences, they would become bitter, I understand. So I just wanna make sure that never happened. And I was always would sit with the interns. I always had a meetings in my office and I would tell stories of how we started paper in my house. And I would always know all the interns, we would put their pictures up and I don't know, interns were always really important. And all the interns like love paper and a lot of them eventually 
had to get jobs. And some of them really proved to be stars because the people who had come to us heard about our internship program and came because of that, and because they loved paper. So we would always have these amazing interns that were like, I'm from Indiana and you saved my life. You know, I came, I'm a drag, whatever, I'm a drag queen and I like moved to New York because of paper. I mean, you know, people literally would move to New York because of paper. And then they were like, "We, I want to be an intern. And, you know, they would get jobs at night as bartenders they would you know but eventually people needed jobs and i ended up always hiring people from my intern pool because when there was a good there was a lot of good interns that came they were smart they were already like in our they were already in our universe right they got it and when you got a smart one you were the word spread really fast like oh mickey okay good example mick mr mick oh my god there's a new intern he's really smart you know and as soon as you got a smart intern everybody wanted them for themselves because we were so overworked and we had no staff and we were like completely understaffed if the intern was really good we would not just ask them to schlep stuff like i wouldn't waste mickey on schlepping clothes because he was so good so we said well we would let him do interviews with people because he was really funny and we would like then i eventually was like came up with the idea of asked mr mickey doing a column and so you know i would the intern and like drew elliott who ended up becoming one of the owners of paper although he's not there anymore either he was an intern you know and he I was like oh my god he's a genius he's so talented so when I would find these interns that were like amazing which were a lot of times we would always end up then they would say I have to leave because I have to get a job and I'd be like oh my god how can we hire you how can we hire you so then I would find out whatever job there was at paper like for Drew I remember he was my, my assistant was leaving so I hired him as I, I just wanted to keep him in the house you know I said just come be my assistant I know it's not what you want to do but as soon as something opens with what you want to do I'll stick you in there like he wants to do marketing that he, he loved Mark so that's what they did we, we I would like hire interns like everyone was interns our editors were interns Mickey was an intern Mickey Boardman was an intern Drew Elliott was in I mean Drew's running like Mac Cosmetics now Mickey's like famous you know Klaus Biesenbach who ran like Mocha I mean a lot of really like people who've become really successful and famous were interns at paper could you just touch on also um, how mentorship how you've been mentored and, and how that's influenced your life that was just an internship but i i love mentoring people and also as i age now okay, i as michael stipe says we have time remaining so i'm old now but mentorship to me now is really important because i have so much in my head of knowledge that i've learned in my life that i want to pass on so i have a lot of young people now that i still mentor and i help you know i'm always being asked eight ball like the zine people i i and i love to mentor um i have a class i want to teach actually about this but also i have been mentored yes by people that i are my heroes you know um first it was john baldessari who was one of my first mentors the artist he was my he was my mentor at cal arts california institute of the arts he was an amazing teacher and mentor and he helped me and i he was disappointed that when i kind of decided not to go into art i was an artist i was supposed to be an artist he was helping me and when i came to new york i just didn't like what I saw. I didn't like the art world. It was completely male dominated. None of the women I went to school, none of the great women artists that I went to school with got in galleries. I didn't get in a gal. I was really bitter. All the men got galleries. None of the women got galleries. And, and also I really started seeing other types of art going on like hip hop and the clubs like Keith Haring and Jean-Michel and the younger kids that were doing this 
art that combined like fashion and art and music and film. And, you know, I was much more into that. And my fellow artists I went to school with were like, Dave, they were like, you know, they got, a lot of them got famous like David Sally or like Ross Bleckner. They all just wanted to make paintings, put them in galleries and put them on the wall. And that wasn't, I was not interested in that. So I kind of said, fuck you to the art world. And I left the art world. So my mentor, first one was John Baldessari, and also then Bill Cunningham I met, and he got me my first job. So he was a really important person in my life. And then George Lois, who is an incredibly important person in my life, who I don't know if you know who he is. He's an art director. He's 88 or 89. He's still alive, but he was one of my mentors who I completely was, he was my hero. And I met him and he ended up living, he lived downstairs from my parents on 12th Street and they became friends. We, so he was a hero and a mentor to me. And you know, I have a lot of mentors. Last night, as I was reading about you, I was sort of finding myself down a rabbit hole of um, reading about different artists, such as some of the ones you just mentioned. Uh, very fascinating people. I'm not a sophisticated I'm not a sophisticated art gay. I basically just came out of the woods here in Nova Scotia, Kim, so bear with me here. Last thing for you, what is the most recent thing that has inspired you? What is the most recent thing that's inspired me? Um, right now I'm, I'm working on books and so I'm very inspired doing my book, but that's just kind of like selfish of me to say that. I'm inspired by my work still, I'm inspired by these young people that I've become close to that I think are amazing artists, this group of young people. I'm I'll tell you one thing that I've really noticed, I'm inspired by some of the friends that I grew up with, that I came up with, who have become renowned and really like kind of uh, um, incredible, who I think are like some of the most incredible talents. And I see at, you know, I'm turning 70 in like two weeks, which is a big deal for me. And, and no one can believe I'm 70 because I act like a child in time. But a lot, all my friends like David Byrne, Pedro Madovar, people who are now renowned, Michael Stipe, are all of the same age. And what I realized, you know, I think the thing that inspired me most before COVID was seeing David Byrne's show, American Utopia. That was the most inspiring, and he's a friend, but that was the most inspiring piece of work I've seen ever, I think, in my whole life. And for David, who I know, I've always loved his work, but this was like a masterpiece from him. This was like his masterpiece. And then I just saw Pedro Almodovar, who's also a really old friend, like for like 30 years, just did a movie that during COVID he did it. And this movie is like a masterpiece also for him. It's like the best movie I think he ever made. It's called Parallel Mothers. And he was just in New York. I took him to see David's show. So I took him to see American Utopia, which I've now seen four times. And I will still see it more times. The most inspiring thing. And after I saw Pedro's movie and I said to Pedro, and in a way, David and Pedro, and we're all the same age. And we have this, when you get to be our age, 70, you see the end, you know? So you see the end, uh-oh. So you, when you're creative, you start like panicking and thinking like, I have to like do all this stuff before I get, I, am unable to. So I'm feeling that 
in myself. I'm doing these books. I have seven books I'm trying to do, although I cut it down to five because the publishers are all going crazy saying you're trying to do too much. And I want I, there's certain things and I feel an urgency. And I talked to I talked to Pedro about it and he feels the same urgency. But I, I think the epiphany that I had out of all of this is that this age that I'm in right now at 70 is the time in your life for a creative being where you do your best work. And because you have this perspective of looking back and accumulating all your knowledge that now is the time when we are doing our best work and every creative person of my age should be like working their fucking asses off to do as much work as possible that's what i'm doing i every minute of every day i'm working on my books i'm, I'm doing a class i'm making a movie producing a movie i'm trying you know there's a sense of urgency and pedro made two movies during covid he made one with tilda Swift but this movie that he made called Parallel Mothers is superb and it's unlike any of his other movies and it's just I can't wait to, I'm going to see it a second time next week I can't wait I'll see it four or five times again I'm going to see David's show on it for a fifth time his show is like the most amazing show so that was kind of like something that inspires me or people who are like kind of at this point in their life where they're doing their best work it really inspired me so it inspired me I have to do my best work now like the new now was really good that was something that I did that was came out really good and I did it completely alone I um I can't wait for your book to come out I will be uh pre-ordering that Kim thank you so so much for taking the time to chat I think you are incredible and uh it's been a real privilege There you have it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the legendary Kim Hastrider. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Kim Paper. I hope you will tune in next week to hear my conversation with Richard Hatch, the openly gay winner of the very first season of CBS's Survivor. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and find me on Instagram at livingbuoyantly. Thanks so much. I'm Brody Stewart-Verner, and until next time, be well.